Hello and welcome to the Future World Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and today's guest is John Windsor. As you'll hear during our conversation, John's had a long and varied career, taking him everywhere from media and publishing through to advertising and now to the world of talent. He's the executive in residence at Harvard Business School's Laboratory for Innovation Science. He's the founder and chairman of Open Assembly, a company that provides the world's first digital aggregation platform to help organizations reduce friction in the adoption of open talent and freelancing. And on that subject, he has just released his sixth book, Open Talent, Leveraging a Global Workforce to Solve Your Biggest Challenges. Now, as I alluded to there, I asked John to explain what led him to open talent as an idea. And he shares some entertaining and informative stories about his experience leveraging talent in new and interesting ways. We dig into exactly what John means by open talent, how companies are adapting to this new way of working, and some of the benefits of working with the freelance economy rather than employees. We also delve into work culture and how taking a different approach to hiring talent requires a new mindset among leaders and managers. I really enjoyed this conversation with John. He flagged some really interesting data to me, particularly around the areas of learning and development. And he also introduced me to the brilliant idea of maintaining a strong bench of talent that you can call upon whenever you need it. So if you're interested in learning about how to adopt an open talent strategy within your business, you're going to find this conversation entertaining and valuable. Now, if you want to hear more about themes like this, make sure you check out previous episodes and also the Future Work Life newsletter. I'll be publishing the latest episode tomorrow, touching on some of those themes. And if you'd like to hear me dig deeper on the topics we discussed, Discuss, you can get in touch with me via the link in the show notes. So let's jump into my conversation with John. I started by asking him how he ended up as a leading voice in the open talent space. Oh my God, I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> if you have a better view of that than me, then I want to share it. Um, I, I kind of reflect back. I mean, you started a small agency, right? And, and, and uh, you know, those of us that have been drawn to the entrepreneurial journey, you know, there's sometimes there's, there's kind of more, uh, desire than there are resources. And so, uh, I, you know, as I'm reflecting over my career, it's all a bit happenstance, right? I mean, I, I, the first thing that I did, you know, I got out of college and, and worked for another publish a publishing company because my dad was in newspaper publishing and, and then I, it lasted a couple of years and I just had this crazy idea to write a book on where to stay, to stay fit. Cause I was pretty athletic at the mm. time. And, and, uh, you know, it, in, I mean, it happened really in New York cause I was traveling a lot for business and I was getting, you know, bigger and bigger transitioning out of being an athlete in college to, you know, the business world. And, uh, you know, I was going for a run and the, I was like, where do you run around here? And it was back in the eighties and they were like, Oh man, I wouldn't run around here. You get yourself killed. So of course, you know, the alternative instead of having a workout, because there was no gym or anything, uh, I went upstairs and had a big old, big old hamburger and some French fries and a milkshake and put on a couple more pounds. So that kind of drove me to, <laughs> to, to stop doing that. And this wrote this book called Fitness on the Road and, and, uh, and it led me into publishing myself and, uh, and along the publishing route, I had this really interesting opportunity to buy this magazine called Women's Sports and Fitness. And it was such an yeah. iconic magazine, um, Billie Jean King started it along with the Women's Sports Foundation and and then yeah. uh, and then some other people in a red book and owned it. And then it, somehow it, it ended up at Time Inc. And, and you know, at the time Time Inc. was running it, they, they had like a, an editorial staff, of like 40 people, you know, editors and writers. And, you know, the paradigm in publishing at the time was, you know, there were two, two paradigms. 
one was you grow your, you know, your subscription through kind of free subscription, like giving your magazine away, but in a way that it qualified for ad rates. And so you would, you know, charge a lot for advertising, but you're always trying to build it through unprofitable sources. And they had, you know, done that hugely. And then they, and you have these big staffs and, and, uh, you know, so the paradigm was always, you would go out. I mean, I live here in Boulder, Colorado. And so, and I'm a rock climber. So just, let's just say it was Lynn Hill, who's a pretty decent rock climber, pretty well known. And the way it would work is, you know, an editor or writer would come up and fly to Boulder from New York and write an article about Lynn. And most of the time they wouldn't quite get it accurate because, you know, they're not climbers and they don't know the nuances and all those things. And so I, I actually, they were bankrupting a magazine fire sale. And I, I was like, wow, this, my wife at the time, my wife, Bridget was, um, was a professional triathlete. And so she and all her friends in Boulder were like, we need a women's magazine because the paradigm at the time was half, you know, even though half the runners and half the triathletes and half athletes were women, like all the magazines always had men on the covers and men in the editorial and stuff like that. So I flew to Nike and and Mark Parker, who became CEO at the time, was just a mid-level dude. And and, and Tinker Hatfield, who's kind of their design director, you know, again, was mid-level. I knew those guys really well. Flew to Nike and I said, hey, you know, I I got this opportunity. It seems like for our little thing in World in Boulder that could be a big deal. Like women could do sports. Like I'm going to put every (laughs) asset I have on the line. I'm going to mortgage my house. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to be all in bet everything on red to, to make this happen. And Parker looked at me as like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think, I think women might do sports. Like we'll even advertise with you guys. <laughs> and so, you know, lo and behold, like, you know, we bought the magazine, but you know, I couldn't afford to do that. And so I cut the 40 editors and hired two athletic, really great athletic editors, two world-class runners. And, and then I just had the readers write the articles and the editors edit them in an mm. authentic way. And that paradigm, I, I mean, I kind of, coined the word in a book called beyond the brand back in 2002 called, I just called it co-creation. Like why, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't brands go out and like co-create with their early adoptive consumers. And so that's kind of where it started was more out of like a, a necessity. It wasn't thinking about like these kind of overarching global, you know, talent and, you know, workforce pressures. It was like, I'm a poor entrepreneur. I, I want to make this go. I want to like, be able to pay myself like what things do i need to change you know fundamentally that are kind of the the standard way of doing things that i can you know that i can change and pay myself a salary so that's where it all started yeah yeah so right so that's that's a very realistic uh, perspective Uh, you didn't envisage 30 years ago that we were going to have this globally connected workforce and this idea of open talent was going to emerge it was actually through practical experience which let's be honest that is the experience of most entrepreneurs so talk me through what happened next well so then i then i kind of i i got you know i read this really amazing book called um the fusions of innovation and it's a it's actually a 1950s book and you know like Malcolm Gladwell says he invented all that stuff, but you know, tipping point and stuff. But it was funny because I was with Malcolm right when he launched that book, and I, you know, and he was being Malcolm, really smart guy, you know, awesome. And I was like, wow, that's super cool. Have you read Everett Rogers' book from you know thirty years ago called Diffusions of Innovation? And we were at this big dinner table with all these important people, and obviously, I was this lowly, you know, nobody. And and he just like, well, blah, blah, blah. you know, he, did, he wouldn't he would admit that he kind of just copped the whole thing from Everett Rogers. And in, in Everett Rogers' book, essentially, what Everett found 
because he was a sociologist at University of Iowa, and they were trying to they were trying to figure out how to distribute corn seeds, hybrid corn seeds, to to farmers in Iowa. And essentially, right. what he found was that the the paradigm that kept not working was they would give them to the most innovative farmers in Iowa, and it would always fail. And so he figured out that you got to give them to the early adopters of the opinion leaders. Like, you know, like Ollie's an innovator, you know, your reputation is like, ah, nobody can be like Ollie, but you know, there's another person that's like more like, Oh, well, they're the opinion leader. They're kind of on the, you know, the city council and you know, they, 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 they do some cool new stuff, but they're more, you know, they're, they're more careful about innovation. And so, and, and what happened in the hybrid corn seed, Phase is it by connecting with early adopters, it it kind of really accelerated, and then you know from there, like Jeffrey Moore wrote, is kind of crossing the chasm and all this great stuff. And I, yeah. I, I, you know, you've been in marketing, so one of my frustrations at women's sports and fitness was that we had all these amazing women that were early adoptive, you know, athletes, and uh, you know, I had sold. I actually in, in two thousand one, I sold that that company to Condé Nast, and then decided this is really what's interesting, right? It's like when we were in the magazine, we knew that like big brands like uh, Chevrolet or, you know, or, or HP had all this money to spend. And then there were all these intermediaries taking out these huge amounts of fees. And by the time it hit our early adoptive readers as an audience, they, they got, you know, pennies on the dollar. And I thought, well, I wonder if we like took those readers and created a community or a crowd and then put them at the top of the funnel and then helped companies come up with new marketing and product strategies. And so that led to me writing a couple of books called Spark and, and Flipped and the idea that, you know, you can tap into these early adoptive consumers and they, they can actually fuel this through co-creation. And it worked really, really well. We worked with a lot of global brands like Intel and, um, HP and Nike and Levi's and, uh, you know, all these companies. And it, it was really magical. And then, and then, you know, so we were playing around with that and this crazy creative guy moved to Boulder. His name was Alex Bogusky. And he, you know, had this agency called Crispin Porter Bogusky and they had a few clients at the time <clears throat> and we were riding mountain bikes and he was like, well, let's just, you know, I love what you're doing. Let's just merge companies. And literally I, I was in the middle actually of selling my company to WPP and I just hated it. It was like Martin Sorrell was being a dick and it was like being super aggressive. You know, they were doing the typical entrepreneur thing, like come speak about your new stuff. Oh, you didn't hit your numbers. We're gonna have to dink you down on your price of your company, you know? And it was just horrible. And so I, you know, Alex said, let's merge our companies. And, and we, we actually just got the deal done in a week. And then we put co-creation right. at the center of, you know, Crispin's work. And oh my God, it was like, you know, there, there are about 60 of us when we merged and, uh, we won, um, about 20 global pitches in two years and $3 billion of the business. And the, the, the agency went from 60 of us to 1200 of us in two years. And, uh, we became at can, we became the global, uh, creative agency of the decade. Um, all through, awesome. all through like the idea of like we, you know, Domino's and Microsoft and Apple and, and Nike, all the ideas like, Hey, we'll help you capture the essence of your early adoptive consumers and we'll create new marketing strategies from there. Um, yeah. and, and then, you know, along the way, you know, we, it was so crazy because that's when I started thinking about more labor because we grew so fast, but one of the things that we did from a strategic standpoint at Crispin which I thought was really brilliant. And people would be like, why aren't you paying creatives more money? And Alex was like, 
you know, in town halls, he'd be like, I ain't paying you guys more money. I, I'm super liberal with credits. So you come, you know, we're using, you're using me and I'm using you. You come to Crispin, you move to Boulder and you get, you know, immediately you get out on a shoot and you get your name on some famous ad that becomes really popular. And in six months you can go to New York and earn triple what you did, you know, what you did here. And so just look at it as like a, a paid internship. And, and, yeah. uh, the problem was we had a 60% turnover and so there wasn't any labor. And so, so, you know, Alex and I had won this new account called Abramo electric motorcycles. And it was a small, really small startup account. We loved that stuff. And, uh, and we didn't have any labor. And so we were like, wow, I wonder, I wonder if we like just put the project up on a crowdsourcing platform. And, you know, we were creative agency of the decade. And as you can imagine, you know, the, the global creative agency, the decade crowdsourcing creative, it caused a shit storm. Like people were pissed. Like, how dare them? Like, what the hell? You know, this like this is like supposed to be the firm that has the best creative. And you're saying that, yeah. oh, our creative's not that good. Come, you know, do our creative. What Alex and I found that the real story underneath was that by doing that, every great creative in the world who wanted a job with us used it as a way to interview with us. And so we got the yeah. very best creative. And Alex looked at me and was like, oh shit, this agency thing's over. Like any good creative can work on a, a digital platform and do global work. You can live in like Cyprus and work on Harley Davidson. Like that's amazing. Like you don't have to move across the world to, to do the work this, you know, the internet's changed everything. And, uh, and so, you know, I got really intrigued Alex needed to stay because he was locked in. And uh, I ended up starting a company called Victors and Spoils, which was an ad agency based on crowdsourcing principles. And to me, you know, you, you being an entrepreneur, it's like, to me, it was one of those magical moments in my life where it, it, I've never seen anything like it. So we, you know, came up with the idea. And because of the Christmas stuff, I was kind of well known in the, in the U.S. market. And so the New York Times, Stuart Elliott, I had a conversation with him. He said, Hey, if you don't launch the company until I write an article about what you guys are doing, then I'll write this three quarter page article. So of course, you know, what are you going to say? Like a couple dirt bags in Boulder climber skiers. You're like, Dad, New York times to be in the New York times. Holy shit. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so we, you know, on, I think it was October 28th of 2009, we literally are three of us in my garage, Evan, Claudia, and myself, running out of money, no clients, <clears throat> no employees. It's just shitting our pants. And the New York times article hits in the morning. <clears throat> and 12 hours later, we had 3000 people sign up to work for us and dish network, the satellite TV provider. I got a call from their, their, their CMO. And they gave us all of their TV advertising, $110 million worth of advertising in 12 hours. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> You're just like, oh my god. And so, but 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 what I loved is I loved the tension. Like this is supposed to happen, mm. right? And then, and then you know what transpired was that <clears throat> we um, noticed one morning in 2012, I think, that uh, Harley Davidson had put all their work up for review. They they had an agency, Carmichael Lynch, for 32 years, and you know Harley's one of the great American brands, and you know billion dollar worth of advertising and marketing. And, and so Evan and I went to my creative director and I went to coffee and we, you know, we were like, man, it would be super fun. You know how it is, right? When your agency, you're like, oh, that, that, that brand would be so fun to work for. But we know like, you know, there's no way to ask permission to be in a pitch because every global agency is going to be pitching for this and it's going to be half million dollars. You have to go to dinners and take, you know, the client out on golf games and all the, uh, the agency BS. 
And so Evan just had this super evil look in his eyes, like, well, why don't we ask for forgiveness instead of permission? And literally we went back to the office and we recorded a video to the 10,000 people in our crowd at the time. And we said, Hey, we're working on Harley Davidson that I'm putting $10,000 of my own money up. Let's go for it. And then we'll go try to present to Harley. Um, at the time, you know, I had like 15,000 followers on Twitter, but I don't think there was a corporate account yet for, for Harley Davidson, but Mark Hans Ricker, the CMO had, you know, an, an account. And so I, I did a blog post really simple. I just said, Hey, Mark, enjoy you to the pitches. Super fun. I've been there, man. Really dinners are fun and golf will be great. and Really good time. As you do that, I got 10,000 people across the world working on your stuff. Just let me know if you want to see any work. And, li- <laughs> and literally I hit that tweet and it was like the agency world blew up. They were like, holy shit. And about a half an hour later, Mark Hans wrote back on Twitter saying, tired of old agencies, love to see the work come to Milwaukee. And so there was this right. crazy anticipation in the whole global advertising community for a couple of weeks. And two weeks later, they awarded us their global account. And so, Amazing. all right. It was just one of those things of like, wow, times, you know, this, this is important. And so that, yeah. that led me to um, a guy by the name of David Jones from Havas, who was CEO of Havas. And he was so awesome. I met him at TED. I had gone and met with all the holding company CEOs. And, you know, guys like Martin were such jerks. They were like, ah, oh, I could crowdsource for my 150,000 people at WPP. And my point was like, well, why don't you? This is a super important trend, you know, and they wouldn't do it. And, uh, and David came to me and said, you know, hey, you're super good at throwing rocks at the glass houses of the agencies. Why don't you come in here at Havas and help me, you know, take it to the future? And I thought that was super intriguing. So David made me chief innovation officer at Havas and bought Victors and Spoils. And we tried to innovate Havas. But, you know, as you can imagine with a traditional French agency, it was not going to happen. It wasn't the sea level. You know, in fact, you know, David kind of preached to the public markets that, you know, they were going to be the future and, and VNS is one of the things they approached and, or they, they told the story with, and, you know, the stock raised by a billion dollars in a, in a year, but it was the mid-level people that were super threatened by the idea that the creativity is yeah. outside the, the walls. And so, you know, David and I tried for a couple of years and there was a lot of, you know, family drama around the Bolares and David's position and David, David got offed and, and, uh, and I kind of soon left. But one of the things that happened during that time is that Harvard called and said, wow, this is super interesting, you know, thing you're doing. So they did a case study on Victor's and Spoils being born open and, and then, uh, and then, you know, Havas and the changes we've, we tried to implement at Havas. And actually I was just with David this summer because they, that 10 years later, that case study is still the number one selling case study at Harvard advanced management program. So we did a 10 year retrospective on it. But that led me to Harvard and, and Kareem Lakani's lab, kind of the laboratory for innovation science at Harvard. And that started, the lab started because they were doing work for NASA around open innovation and, and, and crowd, you know, and kind of alternative hiring methodologies because Jeff Davis had gotten their budget cut by 80%. He was running the kind of the health and human service. He was chief, chief medical officer for Harvard or for, for NASA. And, you know, he still needed to keep astronauts alive in space at 20% of the budget. And so we started using these kind of freelancers and crowdsourcing and innovation, open innovation to do stuff. And so that I kind of ended up the lab and then obviously, you know, open assembly and COVID and the book. And so, yeah, yeah, so I'm, you know, like I sit in these meetings with these kind of global talent 
businesses. And I, I really don't know what I'm talking about. Like I just have all this kind of ground, like in the dirt, you know, dirty fingernails, like making it work mm. as an entrepreneur. And, and, you know, the, the idea of like all these things, it's super interesting. And I'm super honored to be in, you know, and doing the work, but you know, I, I, I'm really I'm in awe of kind of the whole global talent business, but you know, it's like, I just yeah. feel like I'm kind of the newbie on the block. Yeah. I, I, do you know what though? I've, I, I, I've had a similar experience, but I've, I, I, I genuinely believe that's the value in many ways. That's probably the value that you're bringing. The reality is when you've been working in a career for say 20, 30 years, yeah, yeah. it's the curse, it's a curse of knowledge, isn't it? Mm. You sit in a room with other people who've got that same experience and you just need somebody who's got a different perspective, a different point of view to come in and point things out, right. which perhaps seem like stupid questions, but actually open up completely different possibilities. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's what it's been like for you. That's been my experience certainly over the past few years. Yeah. And I, I think there's that. And I also think that there's embedded in any system, there are, you know, ways of doing businesses and you don't become a conservative diet. You have something to conserve. I mean, I, I love yeah. to tell the story. I threw this story out when I was, you know, I, I guess people felt I was pretty controversial at BNS, but you know, I, th- I, I, kind of coined this thing. I called it the Hamptons effect, you know, the whole Hamptons outside of New York. Right. And, and I had just imagined, right. It's like, here you are, you know, you've earned, you busted your ass for a whole career and you're now CEO of a mid-level agency in a holding company. And, you know, it's afforded you a certain lifestyle and it's afforded you the ability to, to buy a house, albeit with a mortgage, a big mortgage in the Hamptons. Right. And so, you know, every May your kids and your wife would go out to the Hamptons and you'd go up during the weekend, but that was like their big thing, right. They're like, really it, you know, it's awesome. Right. They're doing their, their Hamptons thing. Um, and you know, you, you have to decide every year, like, okay, I know my business is shrinking. My, my bonus is going to shrink by a little bit. If I'm going to get to the future, I actually have to take zero bonus and zero profits and reinvent my agency. And so the choice is, is like, I'm mid fifties. I can either reinvent my business, super risky, right? Like piss everybody off inside the agency or, and and if I take that path, I have to sell the Hamptons house and my wife and kids are going to be super pissed at me. Or the alternative is I'm five years away from retirement. I'm just going to kind of like manage it down slowly. My wife and kids are super happy. I'm really happy on the weekends. And I know the company's going to go out of business, but you know, I, my kids and, and wife are going to be happy. I can't do it. I, I'm interested just to dig into a couple of points that you made in the book, which I suppose relate to how organizations might think about what open talent strategy actually means to them. Because when I, I hear that story, I'm thinking, okay, well, look, we, we know advertising and marketing, it's probably one of the more experimental industries, mm-hmm. though the industries which are more open to these new ideas interested in you say in creative tension pushing new possibilities and yet there's also so much resistance to this kind of approach even within that industry mm-hmm. so what about those more traditional industries even more conservative industries where are we in reality with open talent as a principle as an idea mm-hmm. as a way of building a workforce realistically within those types of companies yeah well i think there's a couple of things there and i think it's such a good question First of all, I would say, you know, you've got to get a realistic view of your workforce. And and what I find so interesting and ironic as a little bit of a, you know, with a lot of naivete is that if you ask a HR professional, you know, 
how big is your workforce? They only talk about full-time employees. Like they don't talk about contingent work and everybody that goes through procurement. And so it's just odd to me, right? There was, there was a company that, that sold, you know, that, that got consumed by a bigger one, but the entrepreneur, the, the, the CEO told me a great story of a pharmaceutical company that they were working for. And their whole mission was to get, you know, this company's mission was to get a realistic workforce view of like total talent, right? Like what was the real workforce? And they said they were working for a pharmaceutical, global pharmaceutical company. And everybody in the, in the company swore that they had 6,000 people working for them. But when they dug into the, like the contingent and the, you know, and the staffing, you know, and the, and the outsourcing, they had 32,000 people full-time working for them. And so, you know, it's like, it depends on how you want to view the world, right? Like, so you know, I think we view the world in human nature in a way that gives us the, the, the comfort of control, right? We, we want to control things psychologically just because it makes us comfortable. And so, you know, yeah. it's just natural. Like, you know, you, that's just a, a natural paradigm. So I think that's the first thing. You know, the second thing, I mean, let me, let me talk to you about two conditions and I'll talk to you about the future. And so the second condition is that what I find super ironic is that, you know, some, some, some research that we did with freelancer.com, freelancer.com a year or so ago had, you know, a couple dozen fortune 500 companies as enterprise clients, right? So they had enterprise agreements yet ironically, you know, there's 70% of fortune 500 companies have active emails as customers on freelance.com where people that work at least that do work at least once a week. And so, right. so what we've kind of, uh, our conclusion is that there's this whole secret sauce thing going on, right? So imagine yourself as a mid-level manager, you know, you just did a bunch of market research for a new product launch. The research is amazing and you know, holy crap, this could be like a career move for me, right? And so you're all stoked. You got a meeting in, in a week, you know, here we go. Let's do it. You call your, you know, corporate graphic design department and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you know, get your name on the list. We're three weeks out. So you're, you know, you're crapping your pants. You're like, holy shit, this could be awesome. But I don't have the opportunity. So you go to this thing called the internet and you look up platforms like Upwork and Fiverr and, you know, freelancer and, and you get somebody in Ukraine who makes, you know, a couple hundred bucks on doing a deck for you in a few hours. And it's phenomenal for them. Right. Um, and, and, and yet it's phenomenal for you too. And you walk into the meeting in a week and it, you knock it out of the park and you get a promotion. You ain't telling anybody to use that person from Upwork. And all of a sudden, you know, as you get more promotions, you're like, wow, I, that worked out so well. I wonder if I can get somebody to help me on Excel spreadsheets and I wonder if I could get somebody to do a little data science. And all of a sudden you've built a team, but you're not telling anybody. And it's interesting, you know, talking to Balaji Bandili, who ran Deloitte's kind of contingent work and open talent work for a long time. He, he used to tell me that like, he thinks that he could only discover when he asked people in a really positive way, you know, let's get all the open talent, you know, stuff in one place to help it be better for the organization. He felt like half the people would lie to him and wouldn't tell him what they were working on because they didn't want to re-bureaucratize. They didn't want to wait three weeks to work with a freelancer outside. So I think there, there those yeah. two can, yeah. can, that's where we are today. Um, I think looking into the future, it, you know, just think about like 
Ollie, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you get tapped on the shoulder to be a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and you know, it, it's in consumer goods, and you know that you know AI is going to radically shift the the playing field, and so you need a you know you, what your outcome you need is you need a a strategy, right? An AI strategy. Now, if you're traditionally mindset, you would say, "Oh, I need a SVP. I'm going to go to my CHRO and get an F, F, you know, SVP of of uh, AI strategy." Well, what do you think? It's going to take six to eight months to hire her, and then once you're, she's hired, then it's going to take four to five months to hire her team, and then it'll take mm-hmm. three months to get the strategy done. Well, in eighteen months, an AI strategy, it's like it's not really relevant because it's not going to work, right? The, the alternative is for you to say, wow, I, I wonder who the top 10 experts in consumer goods AI are. Go out to platforms like Graphite and Catalent and, and, and Business Talent Group, hire those people, bring them to London, have a weekend long jam session, figure out what are the hundred tasks that need to be done to get a strategy done. Take some of your team, pair them with some of the folks that are AI experts and knock those things out. And in four to five weeks, you've got a strategy. Now, that strategy could only be eighty-five as good percent as good as as the strategy in eighteen months. But I think we're in that point in 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 business right now. Is you know it's really important to not let great be the enemy of good, and and the, the yeah. importance of getting stuff done. So I, I what I see in the future is the reality of like it, it's no longer about roles roles to be filled. It's about skills and tasks to be done with it with the the business imperative of creating the outcomes that need to be solved. Right. So, so focusing on the outcomes, how do we get there quicker with the right skills, doing the right tasks? And then who cares about roles, right? Like who really, who cares about roles? You got some interesting stats in your work. Oh, Um, thanks. The average investment of businesses as a percentage of employee salary, they spend on learning is absolutely dwarfed by the relative amount that a freelancer would spend, yeah. and certainly in terms of their time. Talk me through that because that alone is kind of justification, right, for taking this to approach or at least considering it. Yeah, no, I think it's super great you picked up on the insight because I think that's the core of it, right? Like I'm always willing to bet on the learners. Like somebody that's willing to learn that humbly comes to a problem and say, wow, I don't know everything. I, I'm going to go learn. Now, now learning could be, you know, upskilling or it could be connecting with an expert that can help you or, or, or whatever that is. Um, you know, I, the numbers we have in the book are, you know, 0.3% of, of people's salary companies spend 0.3% of somebody's salary on learning for job specific skills, right? So if you're a mid-level marketing person, they're teaching, they're giving you that kind of budget to go learn new programs and go to learn new skills. All the while freelancers spend 15% of their time learning new skills. Now I think it's, because freelancers are micro entrepreneurs and they have to make a living. And to do that, they, you know, if you, if you back in the day, you're old enough to remember, you know, we're working on a program called Quirk and all of a sudden Adobe comes in with InDesign. And if you're kind of a dyed in the wool Quirk shop and, you know, your company's doing that, you're going to work in Quirk. But, you know, if you're a freelancer, like you're not going to get a lot more calls from people needing Quirk work. You need somebody, you know, you need to be really skilled in InDesign. And, so it's just obvious that, you know, that's the way it works. And I think in, in this age of AI, I, I guarantee you freelancers are using, you know, AI a lot more than people inside companies because, you know, am I supposed to be doing this? Will I get caught using it? You know, is it, what's the corporate policy? Now there's certainly just like there are with talent, there's certainly a lot of folks using it, but only as a secret sauce. 
they're not telling their boss yeah, yeah, that yeah. they wrote that marketing report on chat GPT, right. right? Because the boss would probably go crazy if that happened. And it's just, companies yeah. are just really disconnected from change because they've had to be, right? They, they've had to kind of re- refine a system and exploit that business model. Whereas they didn't have the, they don't have the flexibility to explore all the options. And, and I just, I'm always, you know, I'm always, I'm always for the micro entrepreneur. I, I love micro entrepreneurs. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm with you there. And the fact that some businesses are literally restricting how people use generative AI is mental. I know, Crazy. right? They're good. Yeah. And they're, they're not going to be around. But most of those aren't set up for outcomes. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. I think the principle of focusing on outcomes and measuring on outcomes, it's, look, it's fundamentally sound because who doesn't want some kind of evidence-based approach to whether you're performing well? And it's the same argument, frankly, that you might make for remote work versus in-office work. You say, look, Hilarious. You know, who gives a shit where people are right. if they can deliver? The only caveat with that is, and this is what I'm interested in discussing with you next, is culture, corporate culture, yeah, yeah. right? So no, none of us who've worked in a really brilliant team would argue that there's something which knits a team together, connection, communication, and call it different things, but that sort of manifests as, the, as a culture. And I'm more of a believer in team culture rather than culture across an organization well, of sure. 100,000 people. It's easier to maintain that. But t- tell me how an open talent strategy can actually complement or improve company culture rather than diminish it. Because I suppose in some people's eyes, what you might be saying is we might compromise on culture in air quotes, but at least we get better productivity efficiency. Mm -hmm. So are we we saying we're trading off one for the other Mm -hmm. or not? No, I mean, I think, I think first of all, you got to, you know, is it culture capital C or, or small C? And I would suggest Mm. that capital C represents, you know, this myth of corporate culture. And I love my, my buddy, Paul Livko, who's the, the, the SVP of, um, you know, technology now at, at, at Wellmark, a big insurance company in the U S he's like, you know, the, the idea of corporate culture is total bullshit. Like any office, if you have 10 offices, you have 10 different cultures. This is the way it is. Right. Mm. And, and, and so, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think culture as a matter, it, it, it's not about working together. It's about having a fundamental core beliefs and a purpose. I mean, look at companies like Patagonia, right? Like I think Patagonia and Yvonne Chouinard have set such a great tone on who who he is, who the company is, what the values are, that people buy into that and they buy into that culture. And so they have a culture that's really diverse. People remote work, people, athletes travel around the world, but they're all on the same page. They all have the same core beliefs. Um, You know, so I think that's that. I think that you're totally right on the, on the C level. And we haven't figured that out, right? On the small C level, like the team culture and, we need to figure that out. I yeah. think one of the challenges for managers going forward is in leaders is like, how do they become elastic leaders, right? How do they manage when they've got two people in the office, two people remote working, you know, a couple of crazy millennials that are digital nomads. And then they've got five freelancers. Like it's really hard. It's, yeah. it's like, it's changed. Like nobody yeah. knows how to do that yet. And we're just developing those skills. So, but I do mm-hmm. think that those, that there is this, I, I, you know, I love what, what, um, automatic does and i think they're kind of the first example of a future state um guys that do wordpress they've got a couple thousand people they they essentially everybody it's a remote company but quarterly they get together and work they don't have a bunch of corporate meetings when they get together on a quarterly basis they just work together they rent a huge you know resort somewhere in the world and they all get together and and work together and then they have a policy that if there are enough people in the you know in a certain city then they'll then they'll 
subsidize, you know, um, co-working spaces and get people together. It's not that they're opposed to that. It's that it's that, you know, and businesses work because of this, you know, my, my sense is, is that what's happening, what's happening is that we're seeing a fundamental shift of power in, in the labor market. Like before, you know, the demand side for the last hundred years has set the, has set the requirements. There were, there were kind of, you know, more jobs available than there were, Oh, actually there there were more talent available than there were jobs. And so, you know, you've had this Mm. power dynamic where you can, the, the businesses set the terms, the hours, the pay rate, things like that. But if you look at the latest corn ferry numbers, you know, the recruiting company, they say that, you know, there's gonna be 85 million tech jobs that will not be filled by 2030 just because there's nobody there to do them. And so now you've got a different thing, right? Now you've got more work that needs to get done, less labor. And all of a sudden the supply side setting the the demands like, okay, I'm going to only go work on these days. I'm going to work these hours. This is the rate I'm going to get paid. You know, that problem, that disconnect for companies, whether they want to admit it or not, is going to cost companies $8.5 trillion in the next, you know, in the next six years. And so, you know, my sense is, is that, I mean, I, I read this great thing that you'll totally laugh about and is that the, the head creative guy at L'Oreal is demanding because, you know, of creativity. I don't, did you see this this morning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw the headlines. I haven't read the story. It was just, it's just the, I, I only saw the, terrible headlines. yeah, I saw the headlines, right. And it was like demanding that everybody come back to, come back to work. But I, I thought it was great. It was retweeted by somebody saying, Hey, everybody in fashion and design, get ready for a lot of great resumes because you're going to have a great opportunity to hire some fantastic people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? exactly. I just think that's the way yeah. it works, right? It's like this is a whole new paradigm. And if you're a corporate, you know, person that built his career or her career in the, in the last paradigm, it's, you got to learn yeah, new yeah. skills, right? You got to learn new skills. Yeah. So L'Oreal, because you're worthless. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm interested just because uh, we haven't got too too long left. Yeah. What what are the different sort of manifestations of this idea of a talent cloud? Yeah. So I mean, I, you know, I, we call it an external talent cloud and building an external talent cloud. I think there's a lot of ways to do it. I think, you know, one way is to just go out and dip into these freelance marketplace places. There are there are a thousand of them, but you know, the more sophisticated way is to build an actual talent cloud, like your own talent cloud, your bench. Right. And, you know, one of the great things, I think great fortunes that you and I've had is, is living in this creative space of agencies is we did that, right? Like there was always like, you know, every creative director had his, had his bench and his bench were all his buddies that used to work with him at the firm or another firm or whatever. And, And everybody had all these freelancers ready to go, right? Like, Hey, you know, Jim, like, I know you're busting your ass on this, but could you do like two days worth of work on this? Sneak that in. Cause I just got this one problem. And so, you know, that culture is really built on individual relationship standpoint. And I think that's really, how do we bottle that? So companies have these benches so they can cut their hiring time, you know, from, from yeah. w- months or weeks to, to days. Um, Cause I think that's the reality, right? What we're facing in business is with these existential changes like AI, Essentially, to be ready for the future, we've got to all have really strong balance sheets. And in order to do that, we've got to move more costs from fixed cost to variable cost. And and by doing kind of that shift, right, we, the, the biggest place to do that is labor. And so, you know, yeah. imagine, you know, if I can free up a bunch of capital because I have a bunch of people working on something that may not be strategically important anymore. But I know 
the strategy of you know the strategy of AI, the, these new tools that need to be built. I need to bring a bunch of new people in immediately to help do those kinds of things. Yeah, I like that idea of the bench. That definitely uh, articulates it really, really nicely. Mm, thanks. That's good. One final question for you. Some of this stuff is happening now. Some of the more look forward-thinking companies, more innovative companies, will be trying this stuff out and, and benefiting from the flexibility that, that it offers and those lower variable costs. Mm -hmm. Some companies, as we know, just take forever. It's right. like turning around an oil tanker. But what are you most excited about? Looking forward over the next five years, what do you be most excited about seeing? I mean, I, I'm just super stoked for the rise of the micro entrepreneur. You know, like I, I love to mm. tell the story of, of my buddy, Jimmy Chin, right? So Jimmy, you know, he's a climber. I climbed with him forever and surfer. And, you know, when I first met Jimmy, he was, you know, a poor photographer living in his car in Yosemite. And, you know, he, he was sponsored by North Face. And so you know, to earn a living, he, he had to sell his photos, but he had to like get the word out and get an article in a magazine like outside. And so he would beg the editor of the outside to like, you know, send a photographer and a writer on a trip that he would do for a couple months. And 50% of the time they'd say no, but 50% of the time they'd say yes. And so, you know, the way it would work is that the, these, you know, writer and editor would go with him on a trip. It would fund his trip or partially fund his trip. North Face would fund his trip. And, you know, it'd take two months to do the trip, two months to edit the article, two months to produce the magazine and two months to distribute the magazine. And then, you know, North Face would run an ad to hit the 850,000 subscribers. They paid 250 grand, right, to hit that ad. And then Jimmy yeah. would pay, get paid a bonus. And, and there'd be hundreds of people working on this, right, like all the way along the way. Now, the way it works, I mean, you know, Jimmy and I started a company called Inkwell where we took his – followers and a few other followers, a few other photographers followers from 10,000 people to 3.5 million on Instagram. So now what happens is Jimmy gets a call from somebody like a Range Rover and they say, Hey, could you, you know, do an ad for us? He'll be like, he lives in Jackson. He's like, yeah, drop a, you know, Range Rover off in Jackson. I'll pick it up. I'll go climb with my buddies the weekend. I'll take a couple photos on Saturday and Sunday. I'll post something on Instagram. I charge 50 grand per post. I'll do two posts, hundred grand done, you know? The difference is, is like Range Rover gets, you know, access to Jimmy, hundred thousand bucks and they hit 3.5 million followers or yeah. North Face waits eight months to hit eight, 850,000 people. It costs, you know, it's the labor of hundreds of people and Jimmy just gets a little tiny of that, that money. And so <laughs> yeah, yeah. to me, it's been this incredible thing. I just think about back when I had women's sports and fitness, it took 120 people to produce the magazine. Now we could probably yeah. do it with three or four people. And that's just the way the world works, yeah. right? So I'm always for that micro entrepreneur, somebody that's willing to break the rules, that's passionate about it. And it's the income and the, and the, and the, and the accolades should go to that person, not the firm. Yeah. Right. And so it's just, it's the way the world works in everything. And it's, it, it's just that yeah. labor has not been affected by the disintermediation of the internet yet. And it's going to be. Right. It, just like every yeah. other part of business. So I'm really stoked for that. I, I know, you know, that's, it's going to cause a lot of pain for firms. Um, it means a lot of rewriting of, of, of the way we work and how individuals need to do what they do, but we all need to become more entrepreneurial. We need to, you know, start podcasts like you did and get out there and do things and be a part of the conversation and be curious and learn new skills. And yeah. if you do that, you know, world's your oyster, right? If you don't, then, Exciting. you know, I love that quote, right? I forget who said it is like, if you don't like change, you'll like irrelevance even more or even less. 
yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. There was another quote just to kind of bring it back full circle to advertising, which I often quote from uh, that famous ad man, yeah. Don Draper. Yeah. Yeah. He said, uh, change is neither good nor bad it just is exactly so, uh, i know i know and you know if you've got yeah. something to protect right a way of doing things you're gonna fight it to the death you know you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna really do that so it's super fun to be in a place of you know kind of lived entrepreneurial experience that i've had the good fortune of of, of having a path to be with these people and, and do it myself and then end up at Harvard to say, Oh shit, this crazy ass shit I was doing, you know, surfing big waves in the Maldives. Like, ah, that's like the underpinnings of the psychology and the organizational yeah. behavior and all that kind of stuff that seem to be just organic and weird and relating that stuff to, to the way businesses at work have been really fascinating for me. Well, look, I leave this conversation feeling inspired uh, and optimistic. So thanks very much for that. Thanks, I just wish I took photos of your mate who's uh, doing 50 to 100 grand just for going climbing. I mean, happy I, days. I, I, it on his feet. Yeah. 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 Well, come join me in, in March. I think it's on the 11th. Um, Harvard is going to do it, is, is bringing me over to London to do a talk. And so I'll let you know about that. Oh, come, that. Yeah. Come join us in, at the Harvard alumni club or something like that. But, but yeah, let's That'd catch up and have dinner and do all that really great stuff. Brilliant. Thanks, thanks man. John, appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was my conversation with John. I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back with another episode next week and I'll see you here again then. 